Well, have you ever been in a situation where it was hard to know what to do? Maybe you had two competing options, opposite options even, and both could be right. When I was a school teacher, this would come up routinely. Uh, there were those students who were pretty regular in being difficult, and most of the time it's pretty clear what needs to happen, but sometimes I found myself torn. Do I show grace, chat about what's happened, but let it go, or do I teach them again that there's consequences for your actions and come in hard? When a child's been niggling me all week and come Friday, there's yet another incident, is that the perfect time to show mercy, that they might learn the preciousness of being forgiven, or do I draw the line in the sand and say enough's enough? Now, this sort of thing can happen to you if you're a boss dealing with your workers, parents with your children, living with your flatmates, when you've got two opposite options, mercy or coming in hard, and it can be difficult to know which one is really the best way forward. Now, it's this sort of thing that's going on in our chapters this morning. We're about to be taken to a time of gross unprovoked sin against God and God's responses to what happens are almost contradictory. At one time he says one thing, then does another, and yet then does in some sense what he originally said he would. These chapters give us something of an insight into the inner goings-on of God when he deals with sinners and his mercy and his anger collide. And so these chapters are going to help us to gaze in wonder at the cross of Christ where God's mercy and anger, they meet in harmony. And they meet in harmony for us. So let's have a look. Uh, Hopefully you've still got chapter 32 open in front of you where we first see the problem of God's anger. Uh, Last week, hopefully you can remember, we uh, had Moses. Uh, He'd left the people at the bottom of the mountain so that he could go back up the mountain to get more laws from Yahweh. And what he received was all the instructions about the tabernacle that we saw last week. All those laws regarding the holy places and the priests and the holiness of Yahweh and the seriousness of sin. But it was taking some time. The people of Israel, sitting down at the bottom of the mountain, they get restless waiting for Moses to come back down, and it all starts to unravel from there. Chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early, sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Now, what do you say in response to that? These are the very people who saw with their own eyes what what Yahweh did to Egypt. They saw and heard Mount Sinai tremble 
as it was covered with the fire of God. They themselves shook with fear when they heard the voice of God give them the Ten Commandments. They heard the words, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. And yet here they are, and they've made an idol in the form of a calf. Built an altar to it, and this calf is apparently meant to be Yahweh. And then to honour this God who brought them out of Egypt, they offer sacrifices to it and get up to indulge in a drunken orgy. Now, this would be bad enough, wouldn't it? But please remember what we read last week. The pure holiness of God, his complete intolerance of sin, the extreme danger it is for sinners to have the holy God near them. And while Moses is receiving all of those laws... The people are going wild with immorality and idolatry. What will God do to this? What will he say? Verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. The holy God dealing with sin. Death is the answer. It's what we saw last week. So leave him be, so that his anger may burn against the people and he might destroy them. The righteous anger of God Almighty in response to sin and idolatry. Clearly, God doesn't tolerate rivals. Now we're going to think about this for ourselves at the end, how we can run away from setting up rivals to God in our own lives because as the only true God and the God of his people, the Lord does not, he cannot endure idolatry. The holiness of God demands the death of the sinner. And back to Exodus. And God's about to destroy Israel. But, verse 11, But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent. And do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I'll give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. In the face of Yahweh's anger, Moses appeals to the promises of God. You said you would have this people. And he also appeals to Yahweh's reputation. You will look silly if you rescued Israel from Egypt only to destroy them yourself. And so here's the problem of God's anger. Sin deserves judgment. Death is right and proper. And yet 
God promised to have this people. So what will he do? Verse 14. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. That is amazing grace. That is remarkable mercy. And it means that God's promises are still intact. And Yahweh's reputation as the God of Israel, that's still intact. But what about his anger? And his holy, righteous judgment against sin. How can he just turn away from that? How does this work? Well, we keep reading. Because with Yahweh relenting, we now have the problem of God's mercy. He said he wouldn't destroy the nation, but then a whole stack of them die anyway. Moses goes down the mountain, finds the people out of control, and his anger burns. Verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord. Aaron answered, you know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewellery, take it off. Then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. (laughs) Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control, and so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbour. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, you've been set apart to the Lord today for you are against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. So we have Moses begging Yahweh to relent from his anger. But when Moses sees what's going on, his anger burns. He can see that their sin deserves judgment and Moses oversees 3,000 of the Israelites dying that day. But what happened to the mercy of God? I thought death wasn't going to happen to the Israelites. And it gets even more confusing as we keep reading because even though God relented from his anger, he then does strike out against the Israelites. The next day, Moses pleads with God to forgive the people of their sin And here's Yahweh's response, verse 33. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. And so we have the problem of God's mercy. Because in his mercy, he did relent from destroying them, from punishing them, but sin deserves uh, judgment, punishment. And so by the end of the chapter, God does punish his people, but doesn't that take away from his mercy? So which is it? Is he merciful or is he just? 
Is he punishing or is he forgiving? It's hard to be both and be consistent. And it all just keeps getting more and more complicated as we keep reading. Because this awful sin of the people calls into question whether Yahweh can even be with this people. As the sin of the people clashes with the anger and the mercy of God, we now have the problem of God's presence with them. The very reason Yahweh brought Israel out of Egypt was so that he could be with his people. But in chapters 33 and 34, what we see is Yahweh distancing himself from Israel. Have a look at chapter 33 and verse 1. Right from verse 1. Look for how Yahweh describes the Israelites now. Chapter 33, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the land I promised. See, the Israelites have now become the people that Moses brought up out of Egypt, not the people God brought out of Egypt. In fact, you might have already noticed that in chapter 32, verse 7, that was the first thing that God said to Moses about the Israelites after the golden calf. He said, go down, Moses, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. Yahweh's disowning Israel here to an extent. And we also see uh, God distancing himself from Israel in that now he says an angel will go with them, but he himself won't. Because if Yahweh does go with them, he might destroy them. Have a look. Chapter 33, verse 2. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. God's got to keep himself away from them for their sake. So he sends an angel as his representative. And the very reason God's presence is a problem is simply because of who he is. After the terrible drama of the golden calf, in chapter 33, Moses asks Yahweh if he can know him. It seems that Moses is looking for some assurance that he can still know God and still be known by God even despite the sin of the people. And Yahweh agrees to make himself known to Moses. But as he does, we'll see that it's because of who God is that it's so hard for him to be with his people. Have a look with me. Chapter 34 and verse 6. Moses goes back up the mountain with God and God is going to pass by Moses and make himself known to him. And as I read from verse 6, look for how who God is is a problem for him to be with his people. So chapter 34, verse 6. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. Do you see how who God is makes it hard for him to be with his people? Because yes, he's compassionate, gracious, loving and forgiving. Yet, he also doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He says he's both merciful and just. 
But how can he be both? This is exactly what we saw with the golden calf in chapter 32. With the whole golden calf thing, we've got Yahweh being both punishing and forgiving, but it didn't really work. It was hardly what you would call neat. Because yes, the guilty sort of get punished, don't they? Because some did die for their sin, but not all of them did. And so yes, forgiveness and compassion is sort of shown because not all of them died, but some of them did. And some were struck by the plague. And so we get to these end of these chapters with a fair degree of confusion. Confusion about God himself. Yes, he's revealed himself as both merciful and punishing, but it's hard to see how he can faithfully be who he says he is. And this tension about God, this tension in God, we see it again and again as we keep reading our Old Testaments, and it isn't resolved until the cross of Christ. Because it's not until God takes all the ingredients of this dilemma into himself that he solves the tension. So in Christ, God takes upon himself our sin. So that in the death of Christ, God unleashes the fury of his anger at our sin, but he absorbs it in himself. And so our sin is justly dealt with. The wrath of God against our sin, it has been delivered. But in his mercy, God has taken it for us, saving us from having to endure it. And so at the cross, the mercy and the wrath of God meet in perfect harmony and they meet for us. So brothers and sisters, Know your God. He's merciful and just. Not just one or the other, he's both. He's loving and angry. He's forgiving and the one who punishes. And we need to keep these two in tension. We can't choose to ignore the love and forgiveness of God and we can't pretend that he doesn't get angry because God says that he's both. But if you don't like God being forgiving or you don't like God being angry and you just want to think of God as the one you like, then you're making God into what you want him to be. Like the Israelites did with a golden calf. It's called idolatry. So if you're someone who doesn't think that God can be forgiving, perhaps as you think of your own life, And you despise yourself. And so you can't love yourself. You can't forgive yourself. And so you can't conceive of God as loving you. You can't accept that God could forgive you. Is that you? Because can you see that you're making God into your own image? You can't love yourself. Therefore, God can't love you either. You've made up your own God. Because that's not who he is. He's both forgiving and just. Both loving and angry. Yes, he takes sin seriously. He takes your sin seriously. But he's also dealt with it. In himself. In his son. In Christ's death. He loves to forgive. 
And so there's nothing you've done that God can't forgive. So know your God. Yes, he's just. He's also forgiving. Or perhaps more common in our circles is, is not to not to not like the idea of God being forgiving, but we don't like the idea of God being angry. We can find ourselves cringing at the punishment of God for sin. We, we like the idea of God being loving and forgiving. We like the nice things about God, but the punishment of God, the judgment of God, the anger of God, can't be right, can it? But to again, to, to think along these lines, it's to be in danger of idolatry, isn't it? Because we'd be making up our own God, coming up with who we'd like God to be rather than who he actually says he is. So know your God. He's both loving and angry. Yes, he forgives sins. Yes, he loves, but he takes sin seriously. Look at the cross and see the wrath of God. Our God gets angry. So in our everyday lives with God, day to day, we need to keep all this intention that our God is angered by sin. And so in our lives, we don't pretend that sin doesn't matter. We don't say, oh, God's loving and forgiving, so it doesn't really matter what I do. No, we don't say that because God's not just loving and forgiving. He also is angered by our sin. And so we come to our Heavenly Father confessing our sin and turning away from it. But it's not just that God's angered by our sin. He's also forgiving of our sin. And so as we come to God, we come to him boldly and confidently, knowing his mercy and love in Christ, knowing that in Christ's death for us, the wrath of God against our sins has been dealt with. And so we are the people who daily come to God, horrified at our sin, turning away from it as we admit it to God Almighty and all the while resting in the sure and certain forgiveness of our Heavenly Father. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to honour you as you are, who you are. Please keep us from putting you in a box and domesticating you. Father, we pray that we would understand you as the holy, righteous God of all who is angered by sin and yet in Christ has shown mercy and taken your own anger and so we can be your people safely. And so, Father, just in our everyday lives, please keep us from taking you for granted. Please also keep us from cowering away from you. Instead, Father, help us to understand the tension of being able to rest in your holy, pure, forgiving love that has come in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please help us, Father, to know you rightly and to live for you rightly. In Jesus' name, amen.